Support for this podcast and the following message come from the United States Postal Service. Turn shipping to your advantage with USPS Ground Advantage Service. Learn how to gain a competitive edge at usps.com advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable. Hey, it's David, your host for this edition of the News Roundup. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly changing, and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. Stay up to date with news by listening to your local NPR member station and visiting npr.org for all the latest. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm NPR's David Gura, and it's time for another edition of the News Roundup. Let's get into it. This week marks one year since the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. And since then, Republican-led states have passed abortion bans, and Democrats have vowed to fight back. It's so fundamentally is about freedom. Mm -hmm. Freedom. The freedom and the ability of an individual to make decisions about their own life and literally their own body. And I, I think there's some a piece of this also that underlying it all is, hey, trust women. <laughs> trust them to know what is in their best interest. There was more Supreme Court drama this week, totally unrelated to a landmark legal decision. And former President Trump now has a court date. Here to help us make sense of all that's been going on this week, we have Arthur Delaney, who covers politics and the economy for HuffPost, Ryan Teague Beckwith, a politics reporter at Bloomberg News, and Zoe Clark, the political director and co-host of It's Just Politics at Michigan Radio. Welcome to all of you. And let's start with the Supreme Court, if we could, which is at the tail end of its term, not unusual this time of year to get news from the court. But something different on Tuesday, Justice Samuel Alito took the unusual step of responding to reporters' questions in an op-ed, ProPublica had asked the justice about his ties to a billionaire who had several cases come before the court in recent years. Justice Alito declined to answer those questions. Then he went to the Wall Street Journal's opinion page with, I guess, what we can call a pre which was posted online hours before ProPublica published its article. Zoe, let me start with you. The timeline is important here. But first, let's summarize uh, what ProPublica reported. What did we learn from, from that piece? Right. ProPublica reporting uh, this week that, as you note, Justice Samuel Alito went on a luxury fishing trip. Um, This was paid for by a billionaire, Paul Singer. Singer would then later go on to have cases before the, the nation's highest court or have connections to cases that went before the court. Alito did not disclose these trips, nor did he recuse himself from the cases. Um, And, you know, this comes after a previous ProPublica investigation that we've talked about during this very hour on this very program previously that reported that Justice Clarice Thomas accepted uh, luxury vacations uh, from a different billionaire. Ryan, let me ask you uh, to describe who Paul Singer is, billionaire Paul Singer. We we think of him kind of in association with Argentina. He's somebody who uh, has sort of pursued distressed debt and uh, has had a very successful hedge fund. Tell us a bit more about him. Sure. I, I think we're uh, in a constant cycle of meet America's billionaires. <laughs> so this is the latest entry. Uh, he's a hedge fund manager on on politics, I don't think that he is as well known as like your sort of Koch brothers um, to the general public. But he is uh, definitely a power player, someone who uh, is typically supportive of your sort of standard Republican 
uh, mainstream candidates. He liked Marco Rubio in 2016. He backed Mitt Romney. He gives a lot of money to the Senate um, candidates. And uh, typically, um, you know, his main concerns are so the standard Republican uh, reducing regulations and uh, keeping taxes on the wealthy down. Those would be the same kinds of concerns that would come in his cases before the court, uh, you know, that, that there not be an overly onerous interpretation of uh, some particular regulation or something like that. Not uh, super surprising, nothing, you know, sort of what you would expect from a hedge fund manager who gives a lot of money to Republicans. Arthur, you heard Zoe describing what was in the the ProPublica piece. Walk us through what was in this rather extraordinary op-ed from the justice himself. Again, it came out before the reported piece, which left us kind of wondering what was to come in in ProPublica's journalism. It's really good stuff. He says, first of all, I don't even know this guy. We just went fishing in Alaska 15 years ago. Found our way to the King Salmon Lodge or wherever it was. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, how was I supposed to know he had business before the court? You know, my staff would have had to look through a million SEC filings to find his name uh, because it wasn't on the petitions to the court. Uh, but you also could have just Googled his company's name because that was the title of the case, and he's the founder of the company. And then secondly, he's like, I didn't have to disclose this because... Our ethics rules say that uh, you know we only have to disclose you know if it's a, if it's a personal hospitality uh, and you know I'm staying at a facility that's not uh, required and he goes on to describe using a, a legal dictionary that the term facility could mean airplane or private jet uh, and so that's I don't think that's how most people think of facilities uh, and and it's it. It's very convoluted and worth the read. And I, I think uh, it was a great way to whet people's appetite for the ProPublica story, which had excellent pictures in addition to great reporting. Yeah, drawn from the, the, the Harvard University archives uh, in part of other fishing trips, uh, that or at least one other fishing trip that had taken place. Ryan, there was, there was another op-ed or an editorial in the Wall Street Journal later this week. Uh, that was the, the journal's editorial page defending itself. What did it have to say about its decision to do this? It became clear to me reading that editorial that, you know, the, the justice had shared with the Wall Street Journal's editorial board, at least some editors there, the questions that ProPublica had put to him. Yeah, I think it's important to always make the distinction here. The Wall Street Journal, it's reporting on the whole, is very good, solid, middle-of-the-road stuff. The editorial board is sort of a separate entity within the newsroom that reports to its own folks and has long had a very hyper-partisan approach uh, to things. So uh, not surprising that they would file what amounts to an amicus brief on his behalf uh, in this matter, they they argued that the ProPublica story was partisan spin and that they were out to catch, uh, they compared Alito to the fish that they were trying to catch. Um, and so, you know, not surprising. It did, the, the close relationship there and the fact that he ran to them uh, initially to uh, share these questions and respond to them rather than just deal with ProPublica kind of showed how a lot of this is being driven by the insularity of mm. the conservative movement. I think uh, Supreme Court justices have these lifetime positions and just not responding to the person who asked you the questions, um, the fact that they give so few interviews as it is, uh, kind of showed how you can end up making these kinds of decisions. 
That's Ryan Tig Beckwith of Bloomberg News. We're also talking with Arthur Delaney from HuffPost and Zoe Clark with Michigan Radio. And this latest episode, I think, has renewed calls for the Supreme Court to abide by an ethics code that applies to all other federal judges. Uh, here's Democratic Senator Dick Durbin, the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, speaking to MSNBC on Wednesday. It appears that there is a feeling in the Supreme Court that it's none of our business. The public doesn't need to know. That's got to come to an end. And there's one person who could end it before the sun sets today, and that's Chief Justice John Roberts. It's time for him to step up and announce there will be a code of ethics for the Supreme Court and the disclosure laws will apply and they'll follow at least the same rules as every other federal judge in America. Well, this week, Politico reported that Senator Durbin is done waiting for the Supreme Court to change its ethics standards. The Illinois Democrat announced on Wednesday his panel will vote on ethics legislation for the high court in July. Zoe, do we know how this would work and and if it is something that the Senate could impose on the court? Right. Well, I mean, this conversation continues to go about the the sort of branches of government and and what the Supreme Court would have to do vis-a-vis Congress coming in and and saying, here are the standards that you have to submit. And that was the letter that Chief Justice John Roberts basically sent a few months ago to Durbin. Um, But look, I mean, Durbin continues to go after this, that that this is an ethical crisis of their own making, he seems to be saying, and basically, again, seems to be fed up with Justice John Roberts for not doing anything um, or, you know, doing enough about it. But we have to remember that in the Senate, Democrats would need nine, at least nine Republicans to agree on any type of legislation uh, to move past a, a filibuster. And, you know, I mean... This just goes back to this issue of trust in this institution that I think Durbin is picking up on. Um, And, and, you know, trust in institutions of government and society in general right now. A new Quinnipiac poll found that 59 percent of Americans now disapprove of the court. Uh, That's the lowest rating of the court since the poll started tracking that question. So you got these two sides sort of yelling across First Street or or sending letters to one another across First Street. And Arthur, let me just ask you here. You know, it seems like the justices now are sort of sitting ducks. It's only a matter of time before we read something else that raises concern over conflicts of interest. To what extent is it now in the court's own interest to signal its willingness to abide by a, a code of ethics? Well, you could hear Dick Durbin begging them to do this themselves. He's He's basically saying, John, please don't make me do this, even though he doesn't have, you know, he's not going to get the votes anytime soon from Republicans to help make it happen. You could easily imagine uh, a situation arising where there, there are Republicans willing to do this because, say, they think a liberal justice has been implicated in, a, in an ethics scandal. And, and there you'll have it. And Roberts has made clear he doesn't want Congress legislating, uh, you know, exer- exercising its power over them. So why not abide a code of ethics like the rest of the entire federal judiciary has to do. Why have this haughty stance that only makes members of Congress more upset with you? Um, So it it seems like it would be in their interest, but they just don't want to. Ryan, I'll turn to you lastly just to to weigh in on this. How do you see this proceeding as we sort of get into the summer here when things get a bit sleepier on, on Capitol Hill and certainly for the Supreme Court as well? Yeah, I mean, I I don't think there's any chance in the near term of some kind of ethics uh, reform of the court passing Congress. Um, but it does keep it as a live issue. And I think that the risk for the court and the risk for Republicans more generally is is that the the more this kind of stuff comes out mm-hmm. or comes up or they issue decisions that people don't like, 
um, the more momentum there is to do something. And that something might be stronger than a bill that simply says, oh, tell us when you have a conflict of interest. When you fly on a private plane. You're listening to the News Roundup. We're just getting started. Plenty more still ahead after this quick break. Stay with us. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Amgen, a biotechnology pioneer leading the fight against the world's toughest diseases such as cancer, heart disease, asthma, and osteoporosis. In a new era of human health, Amgen continues to accelerate the pace of change, operating sustainably and drawing upon deep knowledge of science to push beyond what's known today. With each decade, they reliably deliver powerful new therapies to patients. Learn more at Amgen.com. This message comes from Wired. On Wired Politics Lab, you will be guided through the exciting, challenging, and sometimes entertaining vortex of internet extremism, conspiracies, and disinformation. Listen to Wired Politics Lab wherever you get your podcasts. Let's turn now to the Supreme Court and Roe v. Wade. Well, tomorrow marks one year since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. The Dobbs decision last June allowed states to regulate abortion, and a lot has changed since then. Fourteen states have almost total bans on abortion, and many states have restricted when and how abortions can be performed. Challenges to some of the laws are still making their way through the courts, and for Democrats, talking about the court's decision to overturn Roe has been a winning strategy. Zoe, I'll start with you. How are political leaders marking this anniversary? Yeah, well, it depends on the leaders. <laughs> it depends on whether there's a, a big R or a big D after their names. Uh, Republicans are highlighting the anniversary. Florida Senator Marco Rubio, for example, and some fellow Republican senators introduced a a resolution celebrating the, the one-year anniversary. Um, we should note, though, President Biden today was endorsed in the 2024 re-election by major abortion rights organizations, including Planned Parenthood and Emily's List. Political reported this week that the Biden and Harris campaign, interestingly enough, really plan to make abortion rights a big part of their re-election. As you noted, Democrats sort of continuing to talk about this. And that's somewhat different to how Biden has previously talked about abortion before the decision. Uh, Republicans in the presidential race, though, seem to still trying to be figuring out how to talk about the issue, where exactly they stand. Um, but, you know, meantime, over the past year, as you know, depending on the individual state, some access has been greatly you know, diminished or become non-existent um, here in Michigan. I can tell you that our governor, Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer, continues to sort of make make abortion rights, reproductive rights, the top of her mantle. She continues to say she will, quote, fight like hell, which really is what helped to get uh, a Democratic legislature uh, taking over the Michigan House and Senate for the first time in 40 years. I think it's important, though, through all of this to remember that women are going to continue to get abortions. It just means that the hoops, right? The financial burdens, um, safety issues are higher, but it's going to continue whether or not states ban that. We know that. Ryan, you hear Zoe talking about the political landscape on this issue in Michigan. Let me ask you about the landscape in Virginia. And we got kind of new data on that or a glimpse at how uh, it's affecting politics this week. There was a, a primary election on, on Tuesday of this week. Virginia State Senator Joe Morrissey, a Democrat who supports limits on abortion, uh, lost his primary election on, on Tuesday night. Talk a bit about how abortion rights shaped those primaries and how you see them shaping primaries as we move, uh, move into 2024. 
Sure. I think that the recent experience in North Carolina of uh, a Democratic lawmaker switching parties and, and voting for an abortion ban uh, that then had a veto-proof majority uh, may have been picked up by some folks in Virginia at their neighboring state. Um, so I think that that may have had some influence on this primary as well as the fact that there is Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin who, uh, you know, seems to want to sign something on abortion uh, and uh, needs um, a Republican state Senate for that. Now, Virginia is engineered to have constant elections for everything uh, spaced out. It's great for us political reporters because it's giving us constantly new things to obsess over. But these two primaries, one for the state Senate, one for the state House, uh, showed that there is still a lot of uh, momentum among Democrats to uh, protect abortion rights, uh, to stop new bans, um, to restore things, uh, you know, the way they were uh, under Roe. And uh, I think that had an effect on, the, especially on the state Senate one, um, with Joe Morrissey, that that there were Democrats who, even though he was the incumbent, were like, nope, you know, we want someone who we trust on this issue. And I think that's going to continue to be a factor in primary and general elections especially when it seems to be on the line. I, I don't know if abortion is going to constantly influence every race for right now, but we've seen that where voters felt like it was potentially in play, uh, it was a big influence, as in Wisconsin when there was a judicial election where it felt like it was in play and voters turned out on that. Arthur Delaney, let me pivot to, to presidential politics. And former President Donald Trump will go on trial as early as August 14th for the special counsel's classified documents case. That's according to a court order from U.S. District Judge Aileen Cannon that was unsealed on Tuesday. Cannon will preside over that two-week trial uh, at a federal court in Florida. She was appointed by President Trump in 2020. Uh, earlier this month, Trump charged with 37 felony counts in connection with keeping classified documents uh, at his estate in Florida after he left the White House. He pleaded not guilty to that. How typical a timeline is this? Um, give us a sense, your sense, uh, of how likely it is it's going to hew to the timeline that the judge put out there this week. Well, the U.S. Constitution uh, protects the right to a speedy trial for defendants, but I think it's probably the prosecutors who, who would prefer things to move quickly here because Trump's going to want to delay it as much as possible, and the, and the August uh, start date is certainly ambitious. I, I think this judge in the past has has typically set speedy trial dates that then get delayed by pretrial motions. Um, but the, the calendar here is really important because Trump's running for president, and should he win while this is still going on, he'll have all sorts of ways to put a stop to it, such as maybe pardoning himself or telling the Justice Department to cut it out. So uh, let's definitely look for this to con not start on August 14th. Zoe, there is a, a swirl of skepticism surrounding this judge who is young, critics say inexperienced. She's decided to, to hold this trial in Fort Pierce, Florida, in her courtroom there, so not in Miami, where, where the president uh, appeared a couple weeks back. Um, talk a bit about that, that swirl of skepticism, that swirl of controversy surrounding her and sort of what this movement this week tells you uh, about her approach to this, this case. 
Right. Well, the approach on the surface is, you know, a, a speedy trial, which is something that we've, as we noted, seen her do before. Again, she is a Trump-appointed judge with very little experience. And we have to remember the number of classified documents that are involved in this case and the need for background checks and things like that and security clearances. So this is an incredibly high-level case that is going to be happening. I think we're trying to – what we're seeing is her trying to follow the book. But as we note, I mean, there's just no way that this trial is going to start on time. And and there's going to be a lot, a lot of attention paid to how Judge Cannon uh, oversees this trial and whether or not, as we've been talking about, it goes until after, you know, the 2024 election, where if the president, former president, were to win, that he, as you know, could pardon himself, which is something that, of course, has never happened in American history. Um, but that, of course, is something that we often say about the former president. Mm. Arthur, this wasn't the only development uh, in this case this week. Uh, a different judge in Trump's classified documents case, Magistrate Judge Bruce Reinhardt, ordered Trump's lawyers not to release evidence in their case to the media or the public. Uh, that order also limiting their access to material. Walk us through what the implications of, of that order are. This is a fairly standard order. Uh, what has to happen here is the government hands over what it's got to Trump's defense team. Uh, So that means they will eventually be receiving some seriously classified material. And so they're telling them, don't don't leak this. Don't put it out there. It's classified. And of course, this resonates because that's what Trump is accused of doing in the first place. And it's something that he did throughout his presidency. Uh, But beyond that, I think it's a fairly standard motion and, and Trump's attorneys didn't have a problem with it. Yeah, Ryan, uh, fair to say this is a, a victory here for the special counsel for Jack Smith? Uh, any procedural matter that goes uh, his way is a victory for Smith. I think that the thing that we will be watching very carefully, a judge has a lot of control over the rules of a particular trial, and they're not things that can immediately be appealed, as happened before with Judge Cannon when uh, she made some decisions that people said were basically running interference for Trump in the early stages of this investigation. Uh, if if she, you know, rules on certain procedural things that are fairly bland and innocuous and within her power to, that could really um, make it much harder for uh, Jack Smith to win this case. So I think just even something like this, like, uh, you know, where it's a fairly standard thing and it went the way that we all expected it to go, uh, you know, was probably a, a round of drinks in the special prosecutor's office. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, and of course, the former president may not be allowed to share evidence of the classified documents case with the media, but he has not stopped talking to the media about it. The only way Nara could ever get this stuff, this back, would be please, 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 could we have it back? And they please. Asked for that. Because they have no, we they were did talking. Ask for it. No, and they said, I gave can you give the documents back? And we were talking. And then they said, they went to DOJ to subpoena you to get them Which back. they've never done before. Right. And in but why fairness, not just hand them over then? Because I had boxes. I want to go through the boxes and get all my personal things out. I don't want to hand that over to Nara yet. Zoe Clark, a a rather extraordinary interview there between the former president and Brett Baer of of Fox News on Monday uh, of this week. That one newsy item from from many. What else did the former president say in that interview, and and how could that response affect how this case proceeds? 
Right. I mean, it was it was fascinating. Two nights, uh, Monday and Tuesday. And the president, while he was discussing the case and the charges, you heard there were quite a few back and forth. The president basically said that he was too busy to sift through these records to hand back these classified documents. So legal experts are watching this and just going, he basically admitted to one of the charges, that these classified documents were in his possession, that he indeed uh, took them. I, we've got to note that anchor Brett Baer actually got some attention for his tough questioning of the president. Right, tough for far-right Fox News, we should note. And, and you know, some of what the president says could surely be part of this trial, and that is going to just be fascinating to watch. Uh, we, we heard this exchange. We heard John Durham testifying on Capitol Hill once this week. He appeared before the House Intelligence Committee as well. While Manafort, the campaign chairman for Donald Trump, was giving this Russian intelligence officer internal campaign polling data, Russian intelligence was helping the Trump campaign, weren't they? I, I don't I don't know that. You I really don't, don't know right. those very basic facts of the investigation? I know the general um, facts, yes. Do I know that particular fact myself? No. I mean, I know that I've read that in the media. Describe sort of what we learned from John Durham, whose report came out a couple of weeks back uh, in that testimony uh, about his investigation into the the FBI's investigation into what happened with Russia's interference into the U.S. presidential election. Well, it's important to remember that John Durham's uh, special counsel got his start because Donald Trump wanted someone to investigate the investigation against him, and his job was not to write a long report. It was to to prosecute people, and he tried to do that and failed each time because the cases weren't strong enough. So then this report comes out last week, and this was like a Super Bowl for Republicans looking to discredit uh, uh, the Mueller investigation and and uh, propagate the idea that Trump is the victim of a witch hunt, but it keeps. You know, and so Durham said, "There's all kinds of mistakes the FBI made. Uh, they should have been more careful with the material they were receiving. They should have been more skeptical of evidence." But ultimately, he he said the FBI they were right to open the investigation, and that's a key fact uh, that that Adam Schiff drove home and that Republicans tried to avoid during that hearing this week. So let me get your read on this uh, as well. Uh, That exchange drawing a lot of attention between Adam Schiff, who, of course, was an impeachment prosecutor uh, during the Trump administration, uh, really walking through with special counsel, with John Durham, sort of what what were the conclusions were of that, that Mueller report? What stood out to you during that hearing this week? Well, I mean, you know how we always sort of talk in journalism, like, oh, it wasn't a blistering attack. Um, I'm not sure I would say this is a blistering attack, but it was blistering questioning. Um, I mean, Durham basically said that Russians had been helpful to Trump's 2016 presidential campaign. Durham also seemed to admit that some parts of what happened he doesn't seem to completely know or remember. And to the earlier point, I mean, I think going into the hearing, I think Republicans were hopeful to sort of own the Dems. But after that questioning, I, I don't think you could say that that's what happened. And meantime, this all happening in, in sort of the same week that Republicans decided to censure Congressman Adam Schiff for his initial role in uh, the Trump first impeachment process. Ryan, take Beth back with, we'll talk about that in just a, a moment, sort of the, the censuring process with, with Adam Schiff. But, but let me just ask you about 
Congress's, the Republican-led House's continued fascination with what happened during the last uh, administration and, and the run-up to it. Sort of, does this mark uh, an end in a way? Hearing from John Durham on Capitol Hill, or do you expect this to kind of continue to percolate for hearings like this to to follow? I mean, I think that all of us would hope that this was kind of the final word. I, I, it's. 2023 and that we're still talking about the 2016 election. There have been multiple exhaustive reports about what happened. And I don't think that there's anyone out there who hasn't made up their mind on whether they think that was good, bad, or otherwise. And uh, so I, I just don't think that this hearing advanced the ball in the way that Republicans wanted to. I think that it backfired on them. I think that there may be a sense among some of the leadership that like, they're just not getting any gas out of this stuff and that it's blowing back on them. Um, so I think they're mainly holding these things as a way of currying favor with Trump voters. And since this seems to be sort of a top obsession with Trump, that's kind of an obvious thing mm-hmm. to reach for. But I, I don't think even Trump voters are all that interested in this at this point. Coming up, what does the Iliad, that Homeric epic about the siege of Troy, have to do With Amazon, well, U.S. regulators say a lot. We'll take a look at why the company is facing lawsuits and a congressional investigation. We'll be back with more in just a moment. This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor, Progressive Insurance. You call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options within your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. On the TED Radio Hour, researcher Sasha Lucioni says AI can help us find climate solutions. But just training the technology itself uses a ton of energy. Training ChatGPT, for instance, emits as much carbon as five cars in their lifetime. Tech's climate conundrum. That's on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Let's get back to the roundup. Well, Texas is getting a hot start to the summer. A heat dome settling over the southern U.S. and northern Mexico brought dangerous triple-digit temperatures. Meteorologists say it could last through the Fourth of July holiday. Climate change is already making our weather patterns more extreme, and heat is the most deadly weather-related killer. Experts recommend staying staying hydrated, staying inside with air conditioning, trying to limit outdoor activities. More political news this week. House Republicans holding off on an immediate push to impeach President Biden, a move that has been pursued by far-right representatives. In a last-minute meeting on Wednesday, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy squashed the idea on Thursday— the House voted along party lines to instead open an inquiry into the president. Ryan Teague Beckwith, I'll start with you. This was pushed for by one congresswoman in particular. That's Colorado's Lauren Boebert. How did this even come up for a vote? And just describe the drama that we saw unfold on the floor of the House. Yeah, this is, um, this is I think the technical term for this is a hot mess. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, th- this is something that moderate Republicans do not want to go anywhere near. And uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's not exactly known for being level-headed, had actually filed a similar impeachment motion, but in a way where she could file it and then they wouldn't have to vote on it. So uh, what Representative Boebert did was file it in a way where it would sort of force a vote and uh, they would all have to be on the record on this. It's it's just, it's not something that you want to have to vote on because there's no uh, winning vote here as a Republican. Either way you go, you're going to make some people angry whose vote you need (laughs) 
in the future. And it's not going to do anything because they're not going to actually impeach him. It's never going to get the votes that it needs. So just the whole fact that that this kind of political stunt uh, was pulled uh, really upset a lot of moderate Republicans, um, divided the caucus. Uh, Green and Boebert were sort of at each other's necks, said things that I can't repeat uh, to much. each other. And uh, very much they sort of the, the real House members of uh, Washington, D.C. kind of uh, sideshow that uh, Republicans do not want. And Democrats were just happy to sit and enjoy their popcorn. They're enjoying their popcorn. Uh, Zoe, let me ask you sort of how the speaker, Kevin McCarthy, reacted to this, is reacting to this, what it says about the uh, security of his speakership as all of this unfolds. Exactly. I mean, it sort of says everything, right, that this is the position that he has has been in since the baker's dozen of votes uh, that it took to, to get him into this position. And this tightrope that he walks between far-right extremist Republicans and moderate Republicans who need to win their seats again in 2024 if they are going to be able to keep the House, if McCarthy is going to be able to keep the speakership. And so it is a fine line to walk. And you can see that there just aren't necessarily these Republican votes for candidates who are going to be in districts in 2024 where impeaching a sitting president, Joe Biden, is not going to be helpful for them. Arthur, I promised we'd come back to this. We brought it up in the in the last segment. That is the censuring of, of Adam Schiff, Congressman Adam Schiff, who's running for Senate uh, in California. Uh, that came about through basically the same method here, that vote being pushed through to, to censure uh, the California congressman. Uh, your reaction to that and, and sort of what do we hear from Adam Schiff in the, in the speech that he delivered there in the well of the, the House uh, amid jeers uh, from his Democratic colleagues toward Republicans for doing this? Well, uh, Adam Schiff is not feeling embarrassed about this at all, and uh, he's playing it like it will actually help him win a Senate election in California, which, of course, has a lot of Democrats in it. Uh, But this was also a a privileged motion from a far-right lawmaker uh, named Anna Polina Luna, and it's, it's, it's sort of like a protest against Kevin McCarthy. It's not entirely about Adam Schiff. It's these lawmakers like Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, Luna, and Lauren Boebert wanting more uh, red meat, more stuff that their base wants. And that's what Marjorie Taylor Greene told me. We, want to be, we need to be doing impeachment, and they're feeling much less patient about waiting for these things since uh, Kevin McCarthy cut a deal with Democrats on uh, federal spending a few weeks ago. Uh, I've spoken to everybody involved in this, and I just thought I would share uh, that, that uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene said Lauren Boebert copied her, mm-hmm. that she was a copycat, and that Lauren Boebert said she's not a copycat. This isn't middle school. <laughs> and I asked Kevin McCarthy how he, how he sorted things out, and he just said, well, I just got everybody together and we talked. And the truth is, I think, like, half the conference is really upset that this is happening and they and they prevailed upon Bobert to chill out for now but this kind of stuff is going to keep happening and and Kevin McCarthy's just got to uh keep dancing to get through it. Arthur, while you have that reporter's notebook open, let me ask you about what uh, Ryan referred to by its technical term the, the hot messiness of of this. Uh and I'm curious sort of what the the congressman from Georgia thinks about the 
the, the broader strategy here, I, I would uh, venture to guess she doesn't see this as a, as a hot mess. This is a, a calculated effort on her part and on the part of some of her, her colleagues here. Talk about the, the, the broader strategy, such as there is one with, with motions like these. Uh, well, the broader the broader strategy. There's no broader strategy. I mean, you you see it for what it is. It's chaos, and this is a, a faction of House Republicans that don't run things, but believe that they should, and believe that they can bend the will of the rest of the Congress uh, toward their desires, even though they've proven over and over again that they can't. So it's it's not strategic. And, and speaking with uh, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, she she makes this broader complaint about the House not doing enough fiery conservative things. But it actually became hard to tell if that's how she really felt, or if she was just so mad hmm. at Lauren Boebert that she was having a huge temper tantrum. Uh, and and what made me start thinking was that was that she got up in her face on the House floor and called her the B word. Uh huh. There you go. Um, let me pivot to something else here. And that is the story involving, <clears throat> excuse me, President Biden's son, Hunter Biden. He agreed this week uh, to plead guilty for avoiding about $1 million in federal taxes. He'll also enter a probation agreement on a felony gun charge. Ryan, what was Hunter Biden accused of doing here? Uh, and talk about the import uh, of that agreement that we saw announced this week. Yeah, I think um, these were unusual uh, cases because I, I don't think that they may have been brought against someone who was um, – not as well known. Uh, there was a, a federal prosecutors looking into Hunter Biden based on a lot of different possible things that he may have been involved in, trading on his father's name, uh, doing work overseas that may or may not have been entirely above board. Uh, and there were a lot of accusations from Republicans into this. So this investigation began a long time ago. The fact that it sort of ended with these um, I mean, I, I don't want to say they're minor. Uh, you know, having a gun you're not supposed to have, uh, you know, paying uh, $100,000 in taxes late uh, when you were supposed to pay it on time, those are serious matters. But there, there's usually a sort of prosecutorial discretion that, uh, you know, if things are cleared up, um, they don't get this far. And the weapons charge in particular is usually something that is coupled with other charges. So, uh, prosecutors like to do this. They charge you with like five things to get you to plead to like, you know, two of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so for this to kind of be a standalone charge was unusual. Um, but I think that his uh, willingness to plead guilty to these was uh, is sort of an attempt to kind of close the book, say, okay, I, you know, clearly we all know that he's had problems with drugs. Um, he's had problems in his personal life. Uh, this was an attempt to sort of bring some finality to that, uh, close the book on it and say, okay, these are the things I did and admit to them and, you know, submit to what will likely be mostly fines and uh, uh, not not like heavy prison time. We had another uh, presidential hopeful announce his candidacy this week. That is former Texas Congressman Will Hurd, who announced he's running for president on CBS. There are a number of generational defining challenges that we're faced with in the United States of America. Everything from the Chinese government trying to surpass us as the global superpower, uh, the fact that inflation is persistent at a time when technologies like artificial intelligence is going to upend every single industry. And our kids, their their scores in math, science, and reading are the lowest they've ever been Hmm. in this century. These are the issues we should be talking about. And to be frank, I'm pissed that we're not talking about these things. I'm pissed that our elected officials are telling us to, to hate our neighbors, right? 
Our neighbors are not our enemies. There are fellow Americans who we just happen to have a disagreement with. So I'll turn to you. Uh, reintroduce us, if you would, to the former congressman, Will Hurd, who has spent the last couple of years, yes, as a talking head, but doing some uh, work in investment banking. He wrote a book uh, as well. Why is he running for president? Why do you make this decision? Yeah, sure. Well, just the first sort of background, he is, was from a, a competitive congressional district in Texas, sort of known as as a moderate. And you could hear that in some of uh, what we just heard in that interview. He's a former CIA agent, um, decided not to run for re-election in 2020. Uh, for the last two years of his time in office in Congress, he was the House's only black Republican. Uh, he's often criticized former President Donald Trump. In fact, in that campaign launch this week, he called the president president lawless and selfish failed politician but in terms of you know the lane that he is going to to try to be in in this uh you know election i mean there's just there's so many folks mm-hmm. who are now running and what we know is going to happen is a you know those votes are going to be split mm-hmm. among 10 candidates or more and particularly when you are anti trump there's only going to be a certain percentage of you know the 33% or whatever who are mm-hmm. already just so far right who are going to break down that way. And, you know, in order to be win the nomination, you have got to get through a Republican primary. Would it be a different conversation if it, you know, was a former congressman uh, heard versus only Donald Trump? Possibly. Mm-hmm. But that's not the reality that we're seeing yeah. in, in 2023. I want to end, if we could, with some economic news. Uh, the Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell was speaking uh, before the Senate Banking Committee this week. He said more interest rate increases are expected this year as inflation continues to be an issue. I think um, if you look at the committee's forecasts, uh, and mine are very similar, we expect modest growth going forward, growth in the, in the you know, below the, the sort of longer run growth rate of the United States economy, which is around 2% or a little bit less, growth lower than that. And we expect uh, the labor market to continue to gradually cool off. And with that, there's an expectation that inflation will continue to move down later this year. And if if things happen that are sort of broadly in keeping with that, the strong majority of the committee believes that it will be appropriate to raise the federal funds rate again once or twice by the end of the year. Strong majority came down on twice between now and the end of the year. Ryan Teague back with this is a water cooler conversation in the Bloomberg News Bureau. I know sort of what the Fed is going to do going forward here. So talk about the, the import of the Fed's decision here taking this pause and what you and your colleagues have been able to divine uh, from what the chair has said there and at the press conference last week about what the steps forward might be. I think if you look at the broader economic news over the last year, we've had really, really almost artificially low interest rates for years. And the concern was always when we, you know, we have to bring these up at some point because you need higher interest rates so that if something goes bad, you can lower them again to juice the economy. And what what happened was that they've sort of, you know, made some tentative steps and raised the interest rates and it's been higher than it's been in a while. And then no recession happened. Uh, you know, in fact, the labor market's running pretty hot. And I think the uh, that's emboldened them a little bit to signal that they're going to do some more. They're going to raise it up a little bit more because that gives them more tools in the future uh, should something else happen like the pandemic, like the 2008 uh, financial crisis. So, um, so yeah, I think that the expectation now that they're sending pretty clearly is, you know, get ready, we're going to keep doing this. Mm. Um, and I think the fact that it hasn't so far caused 
on its own some kind of catastrophic uh, effect on the market shows that there's uh, the market's okay with that and the, the economy you know probably will respond now there's always a concern you raise it a little bit more you raise it a little bit more it's it's like going without an oil change on your car like you're always thinking eh, at some point does this thing just burst into flames or what you know but uh, as long as it keeps going uh, you keep you keep going with that and I think that's where we're at right now car advice from Ryan Teague Beckwith there. Um, Let me end here with Amazon. Uh, The company found itself in hot water this week. Many of us may use that service to purchase items, but um, may not remember signing up for Amazon Prime. Well, the Federal Trade Commission is suing the e-commerce giant for enrolling millions of consumers in that subscription service through deceptive user interface design. The FTC also says Amazon then made it difficult for users to cancel that subscription. Arthur, uh, help us understand why the FTC is doing this now. Why is the FTC going after Amazon? Well, because it's not fair to stop people from canceling your your service, and the and what they were doing was, uh, you know, you try to find the cancel part on their website, and it says, "Oh, you sure you want to cancel? Uh, how about uh, switching to an annual membership? Uh, think of all the money you'd save, and and just making a maze." And it, and it has turned out through reporting by Business Insider that they internally called this process the Iliad. Uh, which is a reference to Homer's epic poem Mm -hmm. set over 24 books and nearly 16,000 lines about the decade-long Trojan War. So that's a clue that this was not really an honest business practice on Amazon's part. A book, no doubt, you could get uh, on Amazon. Thank you all for your time this week. That's Arthur Delaney, covers politics and the economy for HuffPost. Ryan Teague Beckwith, politics reporter at Bloomberg News. Zoe Clark, political director and co-host of It's Just Politics at Michigan Radio. Coming up, the biggest news from around the world. Stay with us for the international edition of the News Roundup after this quick break. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, glasses, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Integrative Therapeutics, with vitamins and supplements previously available only through practitioners, including Cortisol Manager. Unlock your best self with clinician-curated supplements from Integrative Therapeutics, now on Amazon. This message comes from NPR sponsor Made in Cookware. Did you know that many popular dishes in Tom Colicchio's craft restaurant are made in Made in Cookware? Made-In supplies chefs with high-end cookware because Made-In makes exactly what demanding chefs look for. When you level up your cooking, remember what great dishes on menus worldwide have in common. They're Made-In Made-In. Save up to 25% this Memorial Day from the 18th until the 27th. Visit MadeInCookware.com. That's M-A-D-E-I-N Cookware.com. Let's turn to the international edition of the News Roundup. We've got a lot to get into, so let's get started. My guests are Anna Edgerton, a tech policy and national security reporter at Bloomberg News. Jennifer Williams, deputy editor at Foreign Policy and host of the podcast The Negotiators. And Dave Lawler, senior world reporter at Axios and author of the Axios World Newsletter. Great to have all of you with us. And let's start with that submersible and a rescue effort the world was watching. The Titan, carrying tourists to Titanic shipwreck, has been missing since Sunday. And on Thursday, the U.S. Coast Guard announced all five passengers on board that 21-foot vessel had died. 
Coast Guard Rear Admiral John Mauger said a remotely operated vehicle, an ROV, found part of the Titan roughly 1,600 feet from the bow of the Titanic wreck. The ROV subsequently found additional debris. In consultation with experts from within the Unified Command, the debris is consistent with the catastrophic loss of the pressure chamber. A private company called OceanGate operated the Titan. Its chief executive, Stockton Rush, was on board, along with four passengers. And, Anna, let me start with you. What do we know about this company's safety record leading up to this incident in these last five days as all of this has been unfolding? A lot has come to light from past litigation, from previous passengers, uh, concerns about the way this company has operated. That's exactly right. And, you know, we've heard from in past interviews with Stockton Rush that he really tried to advocate for an innovative approach to exploration of some of the world's most dangerous places. He said that regulation hampered innovation and trying to reach the depths of the sea and some of the difficult conditions that you encounter down there. And, you know, we had seen concern from within the industry, especially a letter from three dozen deep sea experts in 2018 that really listed their apprehensions with his approach to exploration. And it's one thing if he's taking his own company and his own uh, employees into this kind of situation, but to take paid paying customers mm. on an experimental vessel that hadn't been certified by any kind of regulatory body is really what's drawing a lot of scrutiny at this point. We got this question from our listener, Jana. I'm going to put it out there as a rhetorical question, but any of you can take a, a bite out of it if, <laughs> if you want here. The, the, the question is, I could not care less about your reports on the industry where billionaires offer experiences to other billionaires. How much does this cost us in terms of taxes and climate? I will use that as a jumping off point to turn to you, Dave. Uh, we saw this extraordinary response from many companies and countries coming to this remote corner of the North Atlantic to, to look for this vessel. Uh, help us understand the magnitude of that search And then also, what has the response been from marine groups and the Coast Guard, uh, these other institutions, when it comes to safety regulations for these types of submersibles like the one uh, that imploded earlier this week? Yeah, sure. It's a very fair question because uh, the U.S. Coast Guard, as well as the Canadian and French Coast Guards, were heavily involved in this search. Uh, you know, it's it's believed to have cost millions of dollars to get all of this equipment to this remote part of the ocean and conduct this search. So it's a very fair question of who pays the bill. I think we don't have an answer uh, as yet as to whether, you know, perhaps some of the insurance attached to this trip will help cover the costs. Um, but, you know, for now on the front end, it certainly uh, has cost the U.S. Coast Guard quite a bit to conduct this operation. Uh, in terms of the you know concerns that the Coast Guard and other agencies have raised, basically there are some regulations on submersibles in U.S. waters, but once you get out to the open ocean, uh, this is pretty much an unregulated industry. There are industry standards, so uh, there are companies that will conduct experiments and certify these vehicles before they start carrying passengers. Uh, but it's not. There's no you know, international law, there's no requirement that any company uh, complies with those regulations. Um, supposedly, Ocean Gate is rare in not complying in terms of vehicles that go to these kinds of depths. Most of them go through a more rigorous process before they start carrying passengers. Uh, but again, there's no law attached to that, and it will be very difficult to solve for that because, you know, uh, this is international waters. If the U.S. passed a law on um, submersibles, it would not necessarily apply to the parts of the ocean uh, where Ocean Gate was taking these passengers. 
So we know that operations are, are ongoing. We'll see what comes out of that uh, in the days and weeks to come. We'll move on here to a visit by the Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi to Washington, a grand welcome, a state visit this week. He spent time in D.C. with the Bidens. He met with business leaders, prominent Indian Americans, and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy on Thursday. He addressed a joint session of Congress after a raucous welcome. Indian Americans have played a big role They are brilliant in every field not just in spelling B Well, Prime Minister Modi's visit and the red carpet welcome given by the Biden administration has been a huge subject of criticism. Several lawmakers boycotted that speech to Congress. In 2005, the U.S. revoked his visa on the grounds he was a Hindu nationalist leader guilty of violating religious freedom during riots in the Indian state of Gujarat again in 2002. Killed more than a thousand people, most of them Muslims. Uh, Jen, let me ask you how Modi has made this transformation, has gone from being banned by the U.S. to being a guest of the president and his wife. Sure. So, you know, the short answer is that Modi was the chief minister of Gujarat state in 2005 when he was denied that tourist visa. And today he's the prime minister of the world's most populous country, um, you know, calls itself the world's largest democracy. And it's a country that the Biden administration really sees as an important counterbalance to an increasingly assertive China. Um, India is very much seen as a, an important linchpin in the Biden administration's broader Indo-Pacific strategy. Um, and, you know, even just from an economic standpoint, even beyond the kind of um, geopolitical uh, ties here, you know, trade between the U.S. and India has essentially skyrocketed. Um, in 2022, it climbed to a record $191 billion. Uh, we also heard, you know, mention about the Indian diaspora in the U.S. Uh, it's about 5 million people. Um, a big kind of economic, cultural, political influence. Um, and then, you know, again, going back to the, the Indo-Pacific and the, um, the broader strategy of countering China, we've seen this kind of reinvigoration of the Quad. That's that international partnership with the U.S., India, as well as Australia and Japan. Um, we've seen U.S. defense sales to India rise from basically zero in, say, 2008 to over $20 billion in 2020. So, you know, in general, Modi is the head of a very important country that is very important to the Biden administration. Mm. And so it, you know, basically what happens is the Biden administration sees them as far more important, sees that relationship as far more important than, you know, disagreements over very important issues like democracy and human rights. Anna Edgerton, very quickly here, uh, you heard Jen there mentioning trade, uh, defense sales. What sort of talks did we see unfold here in between all of the pageantry? Yeah, those were two really important points. And I kind of look at the agreements that we got from this visit in three buckets, including trade, defense, and technology. On the trade point, um, India and the U.S. agreed to remove, um, agreed to terminate six World Trade 
disputes. Uh, that's three from the United States and three from India on mm-hmm. things like steel and solar energy. And India agreed to remove tariffs on things like chickpeas, walnuts, almonds, lentils, you know, a lot of the, the produce that comes from the Western United States. Those were placed in response to some of the Trump era tariffs on steel and aluminum from India. So you see a removal of some of those trade barriers. When it comes to defense, there were a lot of um, both public and private sector agreements, uh, cooperations between companies like General Electric and Hindustan Aeronautics to build fighter jet engines. Um, there were also uh, agreements to have stronger military to military ties. And again, you know, China very much at the background of that conversation. The technology part of these agreements was very interesting, and it kind of reads as a list of the United States' concerns with China, especially when it comes to emerging technologies like quantum computing and AI. So a lot of recognition of some of the risks there, but also agreement to work together to develop those technologies further. We also got a joint press conference, which is a a rare thing. Uh, Narendra Modi is not somebody who holds them customarily, uh, and he did field uh, at least a question. Here's the Wall Street Journal's Sabrina Siddiqui asking the prime minister about his government's human rights record. And a note, the, uh, the room acoustics make it a little bit hard to hear. India has long prided itself as the world's largest democracy, but there are many human rights groups who say that your government has discriminated against religious minorities and sought to silence its critics. I'm actually really surprised that people say so and so. People don't say it. Indeed, India is a democracy. Dave Lawler, respond to that if you would. Uh, How did the White House address these concerns about eroding human rights in India? Sure. So Biden was on a bit of a tightrope there because he has said he'll put human rights at the center of his foreign policy. Um, But obviously, he wanted to make this visit from Modi a big success and kind of a launch pad on all of the issues that that, um, my colleagues just discussed. So, uh, you know, he said that they had a good discussion on democracy and human rights, uh, he being Biden. Um, You know, he basically tried to show some humility and said that um, both the U.S. and India had had some struggles with their democracy, but that they were still united by the fact that they were democracies. Um, And, you know, the White House, I think, views it as a bit of a victory that Modi took questions to begin with. As you said, you know, he's been prime minister for nine years now. He has never on home soil held a press conference. Mm. So he's not someone who engages with the media, in particular, the international media, very frequently. Um, But, you know, uh, Biden did not, let's say, directly criticize Modi for his record on democracy. He took a softer approach. Jen, I want to return to something that you were talking about, and that is how we should look at this visit by Prime Minister Modi in the context of the U.S.'s relationship uh, with China. And 1A listener Marion shared her thoughts with us about U.S.-China relations in an email. This week, President Biden's pursuit of alliances, she writes, with new democratic powers like India will serve as a counterweight to Chinese autocracy. Talk, if you would, just a little bit more, Jen, about sort of the, the way in which we should interpret what happened here and what that means for Yes, the relationship between the U.S. and India, but also the relationship between the U.S. and China. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, as I said, um, India is being seen as, you know, it, and this is not a new thing, by the way, for the Biden administration. Um, the U.S. has for, for quite a long time wanted to have India um, be, if if not an ally, you know, in, in name, then definitely more aligned with the U.S. than with Russia or China. 
Um, of course, India has its own very serious problems, issues with China. Um, you know, they have ongoing border disputes that have, um, you know, erupted into outright war and, and conflict um, very recently. So, you know, the United States has long kind of wanted to bring India into the fold. However, of course, India has a kind of long history of non-alignment, right? It's in the kind of Indian kind of DNA, Indian government DNA, um, to have that kind of non-aligned strategy. And India is, you know, now under Modi kind of really pushing itself forward to be a kind of more assertive, more active you know, actor on the global stage. And so the U.S. is very much hoping that with a rising China, with an increasingly um, assertive China in the Indo-Pacific in particular, that, you know, doing things like making these arms agreements um, that, that Anna very, you know, eloquently laid out, that having, you know, kind of increased defense ties, increased economic ties, increased tech ties with India will bring it closer to the U.S. position and will help kind of bolster uh, the kind of broader, um, the quad isn't necessarily meant to be a, a kind of, you know, Indo-Pacific NATO, but it's definitely how China sees it. Mm -hmm. um, but trying to bring India into this kind of broader um, grouping to kind of counterweight China. Uh, it is no secret, of course, that U.S.-China relations have been tense, uh, and for a moment this week it seemed that tension might ease. Secretary of State Antony Blinken made a visit to Beijing uh, on Sunday in an attempt to stabilize that relationship, the first visit by a Secretary of State to China since 2018. And uh, here's what the Secretary of State said about that trip in a news conference on Monday. We believe that it's important to, as I said, establish better lines of communication, open channels of communication, both to address uh, misperceptions, um, miscalculations, to ensure that that competition doesn't turn into conflict. Uh, and we were able, not only today uh, and yesterday, to move back to, um, to those kinds of communications, but also I think we can anticipate in the weeks ahead visits uh, by other senior officials, uh, Chinese officials coming to the United States for that purpose. Blinken had meetings with several Chinese officials, including President Xi Jinping. Uh, Dave Lawler, uh, it struck me as I read your reportage on this, other analysis of the trip, how low the bar was. The trip itself was what was most important here. How would you sort of characterize what happened on this trip and what it means in sort of the broader scope of, of U.S.-China relations? Yeah, that's a great point, David. I think that in, to some extent, uh, you know, the, the bar for success here was just uh, Blinken being able to go getting high level meetings. Of course, there was this will he won't he meet she question and he did get, you know, it's only a half hour, but they did sit down in the same room together. All of these meetings seemed to go off without anything, uh, any dispute spilling out into public. And that was really the, the bar for success because the relationship has been uh, in such a, you know, um, yeah, rough place over over the last few months, particularly since this spy balloon incident, that even just getting Blinken over there, getting him into the room with high-level people, uh, and being able to have the kinds of conversations the U.S. has been wanting to have for a while, was was viewed by many analysts as a success. Though you know there was one thing that they were hoping to accomplish that they didn't, which was getting military-to-military -military channels uh, back up and running, so that. You know, if there's some kind of incident uh, in the South China Sea, say that the U.S. military and the Chinese military uh, can get can quickly get connected and try to resolve it without it spilling over into broader conflict. Blinken said that's still a work in conflict. Uh, sorry, sorry, uh, still a work in progress. Uh, so they didn't get that set up. But yeah, like you said, it was a pretty low bar, and he seemed to clear it. Um, you know, with the way that the trip went. 
he clears the bar, Dave. Uh, the State Department puts a win <laughs> up on the board. <clears throat> and then President Biden takes the trip to California. He goes to a fundraising dinner, uh, and we see a transcript of the remarks that, that he made there. Uh, and uh, I don't know if you call it a slip of a tongue, but the, the characterization from President Biden has gotten him into to a whole lot of trouble here uh, and once again kind of imperiled this relationship. Yeah, so uh, it, over the course of that uh, conversation, Biden said uh, he called Xi a dictator. He actually, it was in the context of this spy balloon incident. Uh, he said, you know, the reason why she was so upset by this was that he didn't actually know uh, what was going on with the spy balloon. And when a dictator doesn't know, you know, that's the worst thing for uh, for a dictator. Of course, China jumped on that, uh, said it was absurd for the U.S. to call she a dictator. They lodged an official protest um, with the State Department. Uh, and so, as you said, yeah, things seem to be getting back on us a better footing. And then this incident may have thrown it back off track again. Jennifer Williams, where do things go from here? We heard the Secretary of State there sort of laying the groundwork for other visits, maybe from Secretary Kerry, Secretary Yellen, uh, Secretary Raimondo. So what happens next in this story? Sort of what has that visit by the Secretary of State allowed or potentially allowed to happen? Look, I think it just, you know, it shows very clearly that the United States is interested in this thaw that everyone keeps talking about, right? And I think it also shows that China is maybe if not super excited or you know inclined to a thought that they're at least willing to you know sit down and speak to the United States which you know you can look at in both you know in two ways one that's a good sign right that they're at least willing to sit down with each other um on the other hand you know the two <laughs> biggest most powerful you know countries uh, economically militarily right these two countries that that you know are kind of at each other's throats right now that the very best that we can hope for is that they're willing to speak to each other is not necessarily the greatest sign right um as you said you know potentially John Kerry may be going over there um to China to talk about climate um, Biden, even on Thursday, when he was asked about his dictator comment, uh, kind of tried to downplay it. He dismissed concerns, saying that he didn't think that uh, it had any real consequence. Uh, he said that he, they had an incident that caused some confusion. Um, but he did then go on to say that he expects to be meeting with Xi sometime in the future in the near term. That's the kind of, um, that comment I actually picked up on and went, oh, that's interesting. So it hmm. does seem that, you know, maybe not in the next week, next month, but it does seem that there are plans in the works to have additional, you know, meetings. Maybe it's on the sidelines of various summits. I doubt we're going to see a full kind of state visit type deal. But I definitely think, you know, you're going to see the Biden administration continue to reach out in various ways with various cabinet level, um, you know, secretaries, et cetera, trying to kind of work on these ties and at least establish some sort of kind of basic rules of the game to keep both sides, you know, on the same page and to calm tensions. Well, let's move to the Middle East, where Israel continued to conduct raids in the occupied West Bank this week. On Monday, the Israeli military killed six Palestinians, mostly teenagers, at a refugee camp in the town of Jenin. A camp resident spoke to Al Jazeera. I was leaving for work at 7 in the morning. I looked outside. Soldiers were coming out of four cars. They took over this house here and another rooftop and started shooting at the fighter's house for half an hour, after which they shot anti-tank weapons at the place. That's when we believe the fighters were killed. Dave Lawler, these raids have been almost a nightly occurrence in Janine for months now. What, what was unique about this particular raid? 
Yeah, the degree to which it escalated was really uh, what made this uh, unique. So as you mentioned, Janine is a city in the West Bank. Um, there's, it's home to a large uh, refugee camp. Um, it's under the jurisdiction of the Palestinian Authority. And so uh, every time um, Israel conducts these operations there, uh, there's criticism from the international community, particularly when it results in casualties, as this one did. Um, Israel said that the, a military, an Israeli, Israeli military vehicle came under uh, attack um, and that as a result, they had to bring in helicopters. So you had actual, you know, airstrikes uh, as part of this operation. You know, you had a helicopter gunship uh, taking part. Um, you know, 90 Palestinians were wounded um, in this attack. Uh, Israel says many of them were militants, but of course, many of them were not. They were just civilians who live in the area. Uh, and so, you know, this was certainly the scale of it, I guess, is what made this, uh, you know, a bigger news story, because as you said, this is happening quite frequently in Janine and in the West Bank more generally. Anne Edgerton, I, I look at the statistics here, the BBC reporting that at least 162 Palestinians and 21 Israelis have been killed in the occupied West Bank and Gaza Strip this year. Is there talk, to what extent is there talk uh, of de-escalating the situation? Well, that's a great question and one that seems really difficult to answer. When you know, as Dave said, we have this raid which started out as just kind of an ordinary, uh, you know, Israeli army going in to arrest two Palestinians suspected of uh, carrying out attacks, and then it escalates and you have Apache combat helicopters firing into a refugee camp where 14,000 people live. So it's hard to see how you kind of walk back from this, especially as we saw in the aftermath, Palestinian Palestinian militants killed, then killed four Israelis in, in a restaurant. And then you had 400 Israeli settlers rampaging through other Palestinian Palestinian villages. So with each kind of tit and tat, it becomes more difficult to kind of walk back from this confrontation and kind of cool passions on both sides. That's Anna Edgerton with Bloomberg News. Jennifer Williams with Foreign Policy is with us as well, along with David Lawler of Axios. I'm David Gura. You're listening to 1A. I'll read a statement uh, from the UN today questioning Israel's use of heavy weaponry, saying the conflict, quote, risks spiraling out of control. Jen, let me ask you sort of what the international community broadly uh, has said about this escalating violence. And I'll note this week as well, uh, the Israeli government announced it will build thousands more housing units in the occupied West Bank. Uh, We saw the country's conservative finance minister approving those plans. Why this? Why is Israel fast-tracking these new settlements now? Yeah, well, um, you know, the again, the kind of uh, basic answer here is that Netanyahu, um, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, has uh, formed uh, the most far-right government that Israel has arguably ever seen. And many of the senior um, people in his governing coalition are, uh, you know, uh, very uh, close to the settler movement or very pro-settler and have openly said that they, you know, want to expand settlements. Um, They basically see all of the West Bank, uh, not just the various areas that are, you know, spelled out um, under the Oslo Accords. They see all of it as part of a greater Israel, and they want to, you know, eventually have that be part of a greater Israel. And they don't like the idea of uh, some you know, in the future, having a, a Palestinian sovereign state. And so even part of the coalition agreement that Netanyahu made with his his coalition partners on the far right um, was to basically 
get rid of this oversight mechanism uh, that used to kind of govern how um, settlements were approved. So, you know, going back to 1996, there um, there was this cabinet decision where basically you need like the very top level officials. You need the defense minister to sign off on every step of the process to approve new building construction, et cetera, in these settlements. They basically made this change where there's no longer a formal procedure in place that involves either the defense minister or Netanyahu. Hmm. And now the oversight has been transferred to civilian oversight, to Betsy Smotrich, who is the finance minister and also from the religious Zionist party. Hmm. So we saw them basically, this is part of the kind of broader coalition agreement that Netanyahu has made with the far right. And so, you know, going back to the question of de-escalation, right, this coming, you know, all amid all of this broader violence, we're not talking de-escalation, we're talking going the other way, yeah. right? Right after there was the um, Hamas killing of, of several Israelis, um, Netanyahu announced uh, the advancement of planning for another 1,000 housing units in the settlement of Eli, right where that deadly shooting attack took place. So they are clearly responding, not with de-escalation, but with more aggressive settlement activity. To pivot here to, to talk about the, the latest on Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Dave, I want to ask you about a, a meeting that took place in St. Petersburg between Russia's president and a seven-nation delegation of African leaders. And during that meeting, President Putin rejected their proposal to end the war in Ukraine. Instead, the Ukrainian military says Russia fired a barrage of missiles and drones into Ukraine uh, during that visit. Uh, Dave, w- what is what happened there, that quick rejection of this proposed peace plan, unwillingness to order military ceasefire, even amid a high-level diplomatic visit like this one, signal about where the conflict stands? Uh, certainly, uh, you know, we, we were just talking in the last topic about uh, signs of de-escalation and escalation. This is certainly not a sign that de-escalation is coming. It's interesting because Putin and Russia have invested uh, in in their relationships in Africa during this conflict in, in sort of selling this narrative uh, that the West wanted war in Ukraine. They wanted it to keep going to hurt Russia, but that it was only going to hurt uh, countries around the world, including in Africa. Uh, and so, you know, the fact that Putin... Uh, as you said, rejected this proposal. The fact that there were airstrikes in Kiev while there was a an African delegation there uh, signals that I guess he's willing to to sacrifice uh, the relationships that that he's cultivated during this war to a certain degree uh, to con- to continue to signal that he's willing to to do what it takes to to propagate the war. So um, you know, I, I think that there was probably some damage done in in Russia's relationship with South Africa, which led the delegation and some of the other countries represented. Uh, but it certainly con- uh, continues to signal that this war is unlikely to be resolved uh, anytime soon. I should say African leaders also held talks with Ukrainian President Zelensky uh, as well. And I'll note one more bit of news out of the region. On Thursday, Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gerskovich uh, lost his appeal against the extension of pretrial detention in Moscow. He's being held there on spying charges, which he and the U.S. government deny. Gerskovich's detention was extended last month to August 30th. He faces up to 20 years in jail on espionage charges. Lynn Tracy, the U.S. ambassador to Russia, spoke to reporters outside the court. Despite Russian officials' public assertions about Evans' activities, let me reiterate the U.S. government's firm position. The charges against him are baseless. He is an innocent journalist who was carrying out journalistic activities and has been wrongfully detained. Such hostage diplomacy is unacceptable 
and we call on the Russian Federation to release him, as well as Paul Whelan, another U.S. citizen who has been wrongfully detained. That's the U.S. ambassador to Russia there. And let's go now to the United Kingdom, where there's been more fallout from the, quote, Partygate scandal. Last week, an ethics investigation into Boris Johnson's time as prime minister revealed that Johnson lied and misled parliament about parties he had during COVID-19 lockdowns in 2020. Now, there is video from another 2020 party. This was at UK Conservative headquarters and hosted by the campaign staff for Sean Bailey, an ex-Tory candidate for mayor. The party theme was Jingle and Mingle. Here's what Bailey said about the video to the BBC this week. Do you, do you think you owe the British public an apology? I'm, I'm reservedly. I re- apologise then and I apologise now. It's a staff team that, that were given to me that I should... The buck eventually stops with me. Dave Lawler, Sean Bailey's not in this video uh, from that jingle and mingle party. What, what does it show? What did we see there? Yeah, so what you see is a group of a couple dozen uh, Conservative Party activists dancing, um, you know, uh, drinking all in quite close quarters. It's important to, you know, remember how tight the lockdown was in the UK at this time. This is December of 2020. Uh, At that point in time, you weren't allowed to visit with anyone outside your own home. So even say you lived apart from your parents, you weren't supposed to go by their place uh, and say hello. You couldn't hold funerals at the time. You know, it was quite uh, a strict lockdown, much stricter actually than what most states in the U.S. uh, ever had in place during the pandemic. So as that was going on, uh, you had, you know, these conservative party activists holding a Christmas party. Uh, You also had Boris Johnson, uh, you know, uh, in Downing Street at the time, Mm -hmm. uh, attending uh, multiple social gatherings. uh, And obviously his staff uh, had multiple parties as well. That was a big part of his downfall as prime minister. And it's really stuck to the conservative party, the idea that it's one rule for the people, uh, you know, that you were governing at the time and another rule uh, for the party that was in power and continues to be in power, uh, but might not be for that much longer, in part because of how much damage uh, the whole party gate scandal has done. Dave, in, in the wake of that scandal, and the investigation (laughs) and this latest video, we have heard from so many members of parliament about it. Uh, For a long time, we hadn't heard from the current UK prime minister, Rishi Sunak, uh, addressing what what happened there. He has broken his silence. Help us understand the significance of that, having him speak about uh, this this recent period in, in UK history. Sure. So, so Sunak is is trying to start with a clean slate. He's uh, actually he's not the, the I was going to say he was Boris Johnson's successor, but Liz Truss uh, was prime minister in between. Lest we forget. That's right. That's right. Uh, yes, and she introduced an economic package that basically tanked the economy. And and Rishi Sunak, who was seen as the safe pair of hands, uh, came in. But he was the Treasury Secretary at the time, living next door to Boris Johnson, and so he's tied to all of this, and he's tied to Johnson. Uh, so when they held a vote on whether to approve this investigation on Partygate that was quite damning for for Johnson and resulted in him resigning as a member of parliament. Uh, Rishi Sunak said that he was busy. He couldn't show up and vote up or down on whether he approved of this investigation. And so, of course, he's faced pressure to speak out, to lend his voice to the people criticizing what was going on at the time. But again, Boris Johnson remains quite popular within the party. So coming out and saying that Boris was doing the wrong thing and he's it's a good thing that he's leaving parliament... Uh, would not do Rishi Sunak any favors with his own party. So he's in a bit of a fix uh, there and has seemed to struggle to navigate that. 
Jen Williams, pick up on that, if you would, sort of what this means for Boris Johnson going forward. If I'm not mistaken, he has a new gig as a, as a columnist for uh, a newspaper in London. So he's going back to his, his roots in, in opinion journalism. Um, how could this scandal affect him any more than it has? Yeah, um, you know, he has definitely uh, produced some really high quality content for his new (laughs) opinion column. I believe his first one was talking about his uh, weight loss journey and his attempts to not do, you know, middle of the night chorizo runs to the kitchen, which, you know, who among us? Uh, Very relatable. However, I'm not sure if that's quite what people were looking for from him. Um, you know, he, he, he always seems to, to kind of, you know, rise again. Um, he, just in case people have forgotten, he previously, you know, his journalism career uh, ended previously because of issues of uh, uh, lying, um, plagiarism, things like that. Not keeping up with journalistic standards, let's just say. Um, and so, you know, look, whether he has a political future, who knows? I am certainly not one to make predictions of, about British politics because that is a dangerous game. Um, but, you know, I think it, for, you know, more broadly for the Tory party, I think, you know, as Dave said, like Rishi Sunak had an opportunity to come out and show that, look, you know, I came into office promising transparency and accountability I think he had an opportunity that he he squandered to come out and and really show that they were turning over a new leaf after the kind of lawlessness of the Boris Johnson administration. Um, He didn't take that. He does, you know, want to have a fresh slate. But whether, you know, the kind of the stink of the scandal of Partygate, which, again, as we see, just kind of keeps popping up with new videos of Tories in Christmas sweaters dancing and drinking and jingling and mingling. Um, I don't know whether, you know, they are going to be able to get kind of past this on top of the issues of the economy. You know, they were the, the party for Brexit and we're now seeing, you know, super high inflation. Rishi Sunak today coming out and trying to present his plan to address rising inflation. So, you know, you pile that on on top of all of the scandal and, and it's really, you know, a, an open question what happens to the Tory party going forward. Dave Lawler, one more question about British politics here. I know there was some news from the the UK Foreign Secretary, James Cleverly, uh, this week. He was talking about the prospects for Ukraine joining NATO, something that I gather can't happen until this this war is over, but talking about it in the terms of fast-tracking that country's application for for membership uh, when that time comes. Talk, if you would, just about the significance of that and how uh, widely agreed upon that would be in, in Europe, among other NATO countries. Sure. So basically, there's a big NATO summit coming up next month at which, uh, first of all, they have to pick the next leader of NATO. That's a big issue. But the other one that they're trying to navigate is how to handle the question of when and how Ukraine gets into NATO. Basically, if they invited NATO, uh, Ukraine into NATO now, they would be signing up for an immediate war with Russia because there's a mutual defense clause. Obviously, Ukraine is currently under attack from Russia, so they're not going to do that. And so different countries are coming up with different proposals for how they uh, you know, navigate this issue after the war of Ukraine getting into NATO. The U.S. has actually been among uh, the more conservative in the approach to that question. They don't really want to make any firm promises that come with a timeline of how Ukraine will get into NATO. But President Biden has uh, sort of quietly endorsed a similar proposal to the British one about um, basically that Ukraine will be able to skip some steps in order to get into NATO after the war because they've already demonstrated their military capabilities during the war. 
And we're seeing a push here, Dave, quickly for by the UK for NATO to pick someone who is not from Scandinavia or the, the Nordic region here to replace Jens Stoltenberg. Yeah, so there was, uh, it, it seemed that the current prime minister of Denmark was going to be the favorite uh, to replace Stoltenberg, but then it would be uh, Denmark, Norway, Denmark as the last three leaders of NATO. And so, um, you know, there is an idea of getting someone from Southern Europe or Eastern Europe, you know, some geographic diversity there. I don't think there's a consensus candidate at this point, and we're only a few weeks away from this summit, so there's also the idea of will they kick the can down the road again, give Stoltenberg one more year, uh, and and decide later on who his successor is going to be. But you know, I think there's going to be a lot of backroom diplomacy to try to come up with an answer before this summit in early July. Another story we're still following, it's been a week since an overloaded fishing trawler filled with hundreds of refugees sank off the southwest coast of Greece. The vessel left Libya and crossed the Mediterranean before becoming disabled, drifted for hours before it capsized on June the 14th. The Associated Press reports the boat was carrying as many as 750 people, only 104 men. Uh, Egyptians, Pakistanis, Syrians, and Palestinians survived, and 82 bodies have been recovered. At least 600 people remain missing. Uh, Anna Edgerton, this is looking like the worst tragedy to have occurred on the Mediterranean crossing. What do we know about who was on that, that boat and what happened here? Well, it is just such a tragic story, and you have people driven by desperation to make this dangerous journey, and you know, in many cases, paying thousands of euros to to make this trip, and then for it to end in such a tragic accident is just an awful story. I mean, one thing we're looking at right now is the role of the Greek Coast Guard in all of this. You know, there was a Greek Coast Guard ship nearby that made contact with a boat. There are questions of um, whether or not, or how this Greek Coast Guard ship threw a rope to the boat, um, the the Coast Guard claims to see if they needed help, to see if they needed assistance. They say that those offers were rejected, that the migrants said, no, we're going to Italy, that um, they were afraid of confrontation with the smugglers. Um, That rope was withdrawn. And then, of course, there was um, the, the migrant the fishing boat started listing to the side and and ultimately um, tipped over. So there are questions about you know, whether that rope contributed to the instability of this overloaded ship and just what exactly the role was in that interaction and in the the crucial minutes after the the accident and whether or not more people could have been helped and more people could have survived. Jen Williams, as I mentioned. Uh there were so many Pakistanis on that on that boat, and there have been raids conducted this week across Pakistan. Why were there so many Pakistanis on the boat making that crossing across the Mediterranean? Right. Well, we don't know um, too much about the specific of the individuals and their journey, um, but what we do know is that you know Pakistan is in a you know unprecedented economic and political crisis right now. Um, you know, the economy is, you know, just uh, in free fall. Essentially, we have, you know, massive political instability with, you know, former Prime Minister Imran Khan um, you know, constantly facing arrest over and over again. His supporters, um, you know, in the, the thousands taking to the streets, protesting. And all of this political instability has really hampered uh, the Pakistani government's ability to address the economic crisis. And so, you know, a lot of people are seeing this instability 
and they are are fleeing the country and looking for, um, you know, like like millions of of, of migrants and, and refugees looking for, um, you know, a better better life elsewhere. So, you know, I think this is part of kind of more broadly this these patterns that we are seeing. You know, the more instability there is, the more economic instability, political instability, the more people are going to be migrating, and that's why we're going to continue to see these tragedies unless you know Europe and the United States, um, you know, really address migration policy in a more holistic way. And I think it's really tragic to see that these are, you know, people who are fleeing really bad situations, you know, only to, to die in the Mediterranean mm. Sea so close to their, you know, their end goal. So, um, you know, I think we saw with, with Pakistan going to the IMF this week and trying to get a, a release of this big tranche of loan money to try to stave off a default, um, whether Pakistan is able to kind of stabilize its economy and, and um, political situation is an open question, but I think more generally we're going to continue to see these kinds of migrant tra- tragedies. Yeah, you had uh, Pakistan's prime minister in, in Paris this week meeting with the head of the IMF asking for the release of the $1.1 million of that $6.5 billion uh, loan. Still unclear if that is in fact going to happen. Nothing definitive there from from the IMF. Dave, I want to read a question, a comment rather, that we got from a member of our text club. A discussion on the global response to the submersible crash and the refugee ship sinking near Greece. We throw everything at a submarine with wealthy people on it, but barely do anything to help the migrants. And um, as we kind of get full circle here to where we started the show, I'd love for you to meditate on that, if if you would. This is something that I saw uh, written about by any number of, of editorial writers. People have, have drawn this rather stark comparison what do you make of it, uh, just in terms of how resources are deployed and how stories like this are, are covered? Yeah, so so you've hit on two uh, interesting parts of this. One is obviously what we as an industry uh, are, are thinking about and, and grappling with. Obviously, uh, you know, there's the uniqueness of this submersible and there's the mystery about what happened. Unfortunately, there's not that much mystery to what happened on this migrant ship. This is an all too frequent occurrence. Um, this was, you know, more casualties than, than you know, these things uh, often inc- involve. But just uh, a couple days later, we had, um, you know, another uh, incident off the coast of Spain with, with um, you know, dozens more migrants uh, dying. And so there's a certain amount of I don't know if it's fatigue as an industry or if we view that readers just don't want to read about this anymore, these these horrors in the Mediterranean. And so they don't get the amount of coverage uh, that when you're talking about hundreds of people dying, that probably they should. And when there's you know a submersible with five people on board, but there's, wow, it's two miles under the ocean and there's all these questions involved, you know, that seems like sort of the shinier object uh, that we focus our attention on. And I think that, you know, perhaps uh, there's some soul searching to be done about that. In terms of the resources, uh, yes, obviously the you know Coast Guards from three countries were were working very hard to find these five people in part because of all the media attention I would guess uh, attached to it. Um, but you know uh, the Coast Guards of Greece, of Italy, uh, of other countries in Europe uh, have at times tried to send migrants back rather than uh, conducting wholesale rescue operations. So um, you know th- there's a parallel between the media response and the emergency response in these two cases. Appreciate the time from all of you today. That's David Lawler, senior world reporter at Axios, author of the Axios World Newsletter. Jennifer Williams is deputy editor at Foreign Policy and host of the podcast, The Negotiators. And Edgerton is tech policy and national security reporter at Bloomberg News. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer with help this week from Adrian Danhauser. 
Chris Castano is our digital editor. Maya Garg is our senior managing producer. Aileen Humphreys is the editor and producer of 1A On Demand, with help from Matthew Simonson. Barb Angiano produces our podcast. The program comes to you from WAMU, which is part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm David Gura. Thanks for listening. Let's talk more soon. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capital One. With the Spark Cash Plus card, you earn unlimited 2% cash back on every purchase for your business. Find out more at CapitalOne.com slash Spark Cash Plus. Terms and conditions apply. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capital One. With the Spark Cash Plus card, you earn unlimited 2% cash back on every purchase for your business. Find out more at CapitalOne.com slash Spark Cash Plus. Terms and conditions apply. Pro-Palestinian protests have popped up on college campuses across the country. But from the eyes of students, what are we missing? From the outside, these protests are painted as really violent when that couldn't be further from the truth. I'm Brittany Luce, host of NPR's It's Been a Minute, and I'm inviting you to hear from student journalists who see what the rest of us cannot. On It's Been a Minute from NPR.